Acts chapter 20, beginning in verse 1. After the uproar ceased, Paul sent for the disciples, and after encouraging them, he said farewell and departed for Macedonia. When he had gone through those regions and had given them much encouragement, he came to Greece. There he spent three months. And when a plot was made against him by the Jews as he was about to set sail for Syria, he decided to return through Macedonia. Sopater, the Berean, son of Pyrrhus from Berea, accompanied him. And of the Thessalonians, Aristarchus and Secundus, and Gaius of Derby and Timothy, and the Asians, Tychicus and Trophimus. These went on ahead and were waiting for us at Troas, but we sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread, and in five days we came to them at Troas, where we stayed for seven days. On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day, and he prolonged his speech until midnight. There were many lamps in the upper room where we were gathered, and a young man named Eutychus, sitting at the window, sank into a deep sleep as Paul talked still longer. And being overcome by sleep, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. But Paul went down and bent over him, and taking him in his arms, said, Do not be alarmed, for his life is in him. And when Paul had gone up and had broken bread and eaten, he conversed with them a long while, until daybreak, and so departed. And they took the youth away alive, and were not a little comforted. Let's pray that prayer we pray. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. You know, last week we began the reading with Paul making these, these grand travel plans. He had these big ideas of where he was going to go next. All of you know what it's like to travel to some extent, I take it, and not just a day trip, but if you do a, a big family outing, a vacation, a getaway, right, or even an international trip. Uh, when you make those plans, you try to arrange for every possible contingency, right? And you pack the necessary clothing and equipment, whatever you're going to need. You book your flights, your rooms, car rentals, etc. But you probably also know what it's like to have the entire trip thrown into doubt at the last minute uh, to make the arrangements and only to have some unforeseen crisis come to the foreground and throw a wrench in the works. So, for instance, like we had to cancel a trip to Baltimore for a, for a cousin's wedding last year because of COVID. Uh, or sometimes something breaks in the house just as you're leaving, and that becomes a crisis, right? And sometimes you just forget something. We typically only remember that the rabbit needs feeding like the day we're leaving. And um, <laughs> thankfully, the Georgias are pretty reliable last-minute rabbit sitters, but uh, they, they feed him better than we do. He, he really was actually noticeably heavier when we came home <laughs> from the conference last week. Uh, I, I've heard the nightmare story of a, a family who left their dog in the care of a house sitter and the dog died on the first day. You know, that, that can ruin a vacation when you get that phone call. Like, you know, don't tell the kids. Uh, sometimes a family emergency comes up, you know. Uh, George's sister got married a few years ago on the same week that their grandmother died. And, you know, it's hard to cancel flights at that point. You're not going to cancel a wedding. So they were overseas for the funeral. And I'm not going to judge them for that because I've missed several funerals in our family for similar reasons. But it definitely puts a damper on the trip. And you wonder if you should have canceled and is the rest of the family judging me and that kind of thing. And I always feel slightly wrong to leave the home, even if minor things are in turmoil. I prefer to leave my house spotless. I like the laundry done, everything swept and scrubbed, and especially the dishes clean and put away. 
in our first apartment in State College, if we were going away for the weekend down to Philly, I would stay up all night till like 5 a.m. making sure everything was perfectly clean. I got over that. I, I haven't done this in 15 years, but I don't like leaving unfinished business at home. Well, last week, we saw there was this big disturbance in Ephesus. The whole city erupted in fury. Uh, they were angry at Paul, and they didn't really know why, but the outrage was very real. That sounds kind of stupid, but, you know, we live in an outrage culture, so I think we can relate to that. It's kind of like those, those bumper stickers I'm sure you've seen uh, where it says, you know, if you're not angry, you're not paying attention. That's our generation. This is the way we think. I used to assume that was like a left-wing slogan, but I'm pretty sure many right-wingers would feel just as comfortable using it because everybody is angry, and we measure sincerity by how angry you are, right? This is what we call authenticity in today's day and age. But the people of Ephesus, much like today, were clueless. Uh, most of them didn't know what they were doing, we were told, and in the end we saw it was a big hullabaloo over nothing. It was the most anticlimactic riot of all time. The quiet riot, I called it. They were simply dismissed by the city clerk, like some revolution, right? I also mentioned last week the, the Whiskey Rebellion, you know, how President Washington marched to Western PA to quell this riot of farmers out there. And, of course, as soon as they heard Washington was coming with, like, 10,000 guns, they went home quietly, and the whole thing fizzled out, thus making the Whiskey Rebellion something of a misnomer, uh, a lot of talk and no action. It's just a cool name for a local pub in Carlisle now. But... Uh, the Ephesian riot was much the same. Ultimately, nothing came of it. However, if I was Paul, uh, I'd have a very uneasy time, I would think, hitting the road after this incident because it feels like leaving dishes in the sink. In one sense, it's easy, yeah, because it's, in a way it's even sensible, right, to leave. If, if public sentiment is kind of against you, the city might be unsafe. So self-preservation says get out of Dodge while you can. But Paul's not the sort of guy to worry about that, not typically, uh, he's been driven by love for his people, by the flock. And he was the one who wanted to go square off with everybody right in the theater with this mob, right? Uh, because he doesn't like to see his people suffer. And yet he decides to just go ahead with this planned trip to Macedonia, even with the upheaval in Ephesus. He makes no further public appearances. Verse 1 says that he called the guys to him rather than go out to them. And what we see next is Paul sort of globetrotting for several verses. He visits a bunch of places, and he doesn't stay anywhere particularly long after two years in Ephesus. Luke gives only the scarcest details, but we get the impression that Paul is very much on the move, almost like he's stretching his legs after sitting for two years in Ephesus. I'll read the verses again. It says, After the uproar ceased, Paul sent for the disciples, and after encouraging them, he said farewell, departed for Macedonia. When he had gone through those regions and had given them much encouragement, he came to Greece there he spent three months, and when a plot was made against him by the Jews, as he was about to set sail for Syria, he decided to return through Macedonia. So Pater, the Berean, son of Pyrrhus from Berea, accompanied him, and of the Thessalonians, Aristarchus and Secundus, and Gaius of Derby and Timothy, and the Asians, Tychicus and Trophimus. These went on ahead and were waiting for us at Troas, but we sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread, and in five days we came to them at Troas, where we stayed for seven days. Once again, that's a lot of miles to compress into six little verses. Uh, so we see in verse 1 that Paul didn't leave Ephesus or the province of Asia until he at least took some time to encourage the brothers. 
Verse 2 tells us that he breezed through Macedonia, encouraging the churches he had planted there as he went. Then he got to Greece. That would be the, the Roman province of Achaia, which means you know Athens and Corinth. Uh, and then we're told in verse 3 that he was planning to sail to Syria. That would mean Syrian Antioch, his original sending church. Uh, where he had trained under Barnabas. So verse 3 basically says that this was supposed to be the last stop, probably in Corinth. He was going to sail from there. Uh, But God uses Paul's Jewish enemies to basically chase Paul in a different direction. So he doubles back through Macedonia, retracing his steps. And I'm sure people were surprised to see him again so quickly. And you notice that we get a whole bunch of names along, along the way, just kind of thrown at us. You know, Sopater from Berea, Aristarchus and Secundus from Thessalonica, Gaius and Timothy from Derbe, uh, Tychicus and Trophimus from Asia, basically Ephesus. So it gets to be quite an entourage. This is probably not all the names, right? Because Luke also slips back into the first person in verse 5, so apparently he joined back up with Paul in Philippi. So Paul's got quite a posse following him around these days, right? And as I said last week, his ministry is becoming more of an institution and a movement. There's something, there is something romantic, I think, about the idea of doing solo missions work, but gospel success should lead to more workers. So Paul's not selling out on the original model. He's just gathering more guys around them, very similar to how Jesus did. So Paul's picking up more aspiring missionaries in every province, which is really neat. Because that means that the churches that were in their infant stages, the last time Paul saw them, are now ready to send their own missionaries, people that are ready to join him. That's actually pretty awesome. So we, I can't say much about any of these characters. I don't really know much, but I don't want you to miss the significance and really the, the excitement of what's happened there. And in spite of opposition, these churches are growing and thriving, even though Paul's not been there in, in this case in years. So at the end of this flurry of movement, Paul finds himself in Troas, a town that we may have forgotten about by now. The last time Paul was in Troas, if you'll recall, was way back in chapter 16. It gets mentioned only kind of briefly. He went there only because he had to. That was back when when the Holy Spirit wouldn't let him go to any of the other places he was trying to go, right? So he kind of got forced to go stop in Troas, which is the end of the road at that point. You're just stuck at the sea. And uh, that's where Paul had this vision of the Macedonian man asking for help, and that's how he ended up going to Europe. So a lot of Paul's work and his vision now of going to Rome even, right, that all kind of started at Troas. He had been mostly doing work in Asia. So Troas is also where Paul originally met Luke, if you'll recall. Luke traveled with Paul to Philippi, and he ended up staying there. And now we find Luke rejoining Paul all these years later, and going back to where they started, Troas, this, this town on the west coast of Anatolia. All right, so much for the travelogue, all right? I, I try to be creative up here most weeks and to seek out sermon points, even in the obscure places, but I honestly can't think of a whole lot more to say about these first six verses. It's a lot of moving around. It's a lot of names you're not going to hear again. So I'm going to focus in on the next part, which is really the next major episode Luke wants to tell us about, because the first six verses really are just stage set up for this funny little episode. Uh, Luke wants to give us just enough detail to know how Paul ended up back in Troas and also who was in the room when this thing happened, at least some of the names. Because Paul never intended to be here, and it wasn't really on his path. Uh, So Luke, for whatever reason, wants us to know that Paul was following and executing a plan to revisit his church plans, but he had every intention of being back in Syria by now. 
He was supposed to sail from Corinth. In fact, Troas is the only town that wasn't on the docket at all. Paul wanted to hit Macedonia, Greece. I doubt he cared much if he got back to Troas, but he was providentially hindered, and yet again forced to go there by taking the long way back, all seemingly to set up this funny little story about Eutychus. So clearly God wanted Paul to be in Troas this week. He is sovereign. Uh, He's sovereign even over our enemies, so the Jews who plotted against Paul in Greece were part of the plan. We've seen that Paul is a planner. He had sent a crew to Macedonia. Uh, I think Paul doesn't like surprises, but God has upset his entire travel itinerary uh, just to be sure that he and his group of ministry partners landed in Troas for a week. Now, what pressing reason could there be for this? I don't know. Maybe we can figure it out. But first, we have to figure out exactly what happened, and then maybe we can figure out the how and the why, and perhaps even be able to discern why Luke thinks this is so important. So Paul lands here in Troas. Again, not a pre-planned visit, and he ends up spending the week. And it sounds like he got there maybe on, a, maybe on the Monday. It says, on the first day of the week when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day, and he prolonged his speech until midnight. So you start with this bird's eye view of Paul's travels. We zoom in now on this story. Luke sets the stage. It's a Sunday evening service. The purpose of the meeting is to break bread. That could refer to a normal meal, but seeing as this meeting is running awfully late, I think we can safely assume this refers to a communion service. It's not the normal dinner hour. It's Paul's last full day in Troas. He's leaving tomorrow, so he's been here a full week already. You also get the impression that there is a genuine body of believers here in Troas, right? That sounds like Paul did some actual ministry there. When it was mentioned back in chapter 16, Luke made it sound like he was just passing through. But along with meeting Luke, he must have laid some groundwork for a church there before he received the Macedonian call, because there is this church waiting there for him. We also begin to get the picture that Paul can be rather verbose. I've been amazed as we've been going through Acts, how concise most of the speeches have been. Uh, The apostles, including Paul, have kept most of their gospel appeals short and sweet. Uh, The longest speech we've seen was Stephen's before the Sanhedrin. Now, it's possible that Luke isn't always recording the entire speeches verbatim, but in this case, Luke doesn't even seem that interested in recording it at all. He gives no indication what Paul was even talking about. He just wants you to know that it was long. That's the impression. It's the one distinct characteristic of this sermon. That's what's memorable. The impression we're left with is that Paul has a lot to say to this church before he hits the road again. Tonight's his last chance to encourage this body of believers. (laughs) Maybe ever, and so he doesn't want to miss this chance of getting everything off of his chest. So he just keeps going. Now, I don't mind talking late. Georgia can vouch for that. This has been true for years. Uh, And really, since childhood, when I was a kid, I I shared a room, bunk bed. I was top. My sister was on the bottom when we were little, and she used to pretend to be asleep just to get me to shut up. (laughs) Not everybody wants to talk or be talked to after midnight. Now... That again, now fire night was on Friday, right? And most of us were there until midnight, right? And uh, we were chatting and burning financial records, right, Ken? 
And, um, but we stayed that long because we were still engaged in conversation. We weren't bored yet, you know, and I think people only left out of propriety or something like that, you know. Uh, and on the other hand, in that case, we were all talking, right? Whereas it seems like Paul was dominating conversation here. The conversation didn't drag out. Paul did. Luke says he prolonged his speech, not everybody else's. They were all mostly listening. And then Luke gives us another part of the scenery in verse 8. There were many lamps in the upper room where we were gathered. That's a whole verse. I recently started compiling a list of funny little out-of-context verses from Scripture that would be great to assign to like high school students as memory work. Um, this could be added to that list. There were lots of lamps. So what? It was past midnight. Of course there were lamps, right? Even many lamps. That would make sense. John Calvin says this was because there were lots of people there, but also because it would look like something shady was going on and that this would make sure that this holy company, as he puts it, would not be besmirched for doing anything off-color here in the dimness. Um, now, I, I think Calvin is probably on to something. We, we just got a list of Paul's traveling entourage. He brings a party with him everywhere he goes, right? Kind of like our family. Um, so you have the house church of Troas, which, like the other churches Paul has planted, it's probably grown in the years since he's been there, uh, plus Paul and all his buddies. and So that's a crowded room, and it would need light. That's still not a good reason for mentioning it. should just go without saying, right? It was late, there were a lot of us, so of course there were many lamps, right? But the impression I get is that Luke is making a point about the air quality in the place, now, my wife can't stand being in a room with a scented candle for very long. She finds the fumes oppressive. So the old standby of buying a girl a candle when you don't know what else to get her, that's never worked with her. She can handle essential oils, but she can't handle Yankee candles. Um, but if you light enough even plain candles in a tight enough space, it can be suffocating, Right? Now, you kids, have you ever done the, the I know my kids have, the, 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 the experiment you do with a candle in a jar and then you put the lid on it, right? What happens? Goes out, right? Why? What does it need to burn? Oxygen. Even the adults are answering. This is good, you know. I, I mean, what that means is that each candle is burning the air around it. And the same would go for oil lamps. And, and, and unlike paraffin and beeswax, which burn pretty clean. These lamps are probably using olive oil, which gives off more soot. So if this is a small room and crowded, this could make you a little claustrophobic. I've twice been stuck in elevators and had to wait for the fire department or, you know, maintenance crew. They're not very well ventilated. You can start to feel a little lightheaded and you can get a little panicky breathing the same stale air, not to mention possible body odor issues in such spaces. Crowds tend to bring these things to your senses after a while. Now, if this were a cold winter night, it would all be pretty cozy, but it was springtime in the Mediterranean, so it's warm, probably too warm. Taking all that into account, if I were in such a place, a natural place for refuge without leaving the meeting and seeming rude would be to find the nearest window. And that's just what happens. 
It says, and a young man named Eutychus, sitting at the window, sank into a deep sleep as Paul talked still longer. And being overcome by sleep, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. This was quite a tragedy. It's comedic, yes, but not if you would actually been there. You know, it's only funny 2,000 years in retrospect. It's the sort of tragedy that the church in Troas might not have survived, I would think. Luke tells us a few things here. He tells us that Eutychus was a young man. That means he has all the promise of youth. But it also means he has the attention span of a typical teenager, short I'd be shocked if his mind had not been drifting for a while before he actually fell asleep. And Luke also emphasizes that this was not merely nodding off, okay? I know what that looks like. My my father was a master of sleeping deeply in weird places and in weird positions. Dave and Esther, you've seen this firsthand. You know all about it including church on occasion. He could do it there. But my, my dad had this habit. He would routinely fall asleep watching TV after dinner, and he would lay on the floor, his feet out before him. He would prop himself up on his elbows, and his head would just drop back, and he could sleep with his head rocking like that. He could do this for like an hour, hour and a half. It was a miracle. <laughs> That's not natural. My papa Blondine would sleep in the same spot on his couch while watching Walker, Texas Ranger every Sunday afternoon. Day of rest. It's a gift from God, right? Um, I can sleep in my black leather chair at home, my throne, as it were, but it's not hard to wake me up there. I, I can't sleep deeply in a chair. But Luke says, make no mistake about it, this dude was out. A deep sleep. He was overcome with sleep, down for the count. If he was any older, everyone would have heard him sleeping. Like many men, I've been told I've developed a prodigious snore that was not something Georgia signed up for in my younger days. Sorry, babe. But Eutychus is still a young buck, so he could probably pass out quietly without anybody noticing. But then the tragedy strikes. And he falls. I've had kids fall out of beds. And we have mostly bunk beds in my house. We got a lot of them, you know. Uh, It's a horrifying sound. And you can't help but wonder, you jump up because you think, is it from the top bunk? Which one was it? I can't even imagine how nauseating is the sound of panic and the screams in that room when Utica suddenly disappears, maybe he wakes long enough to, to gasp and scream, and all they hear is a thud. We don't know for sure who's in the room, but I can imagine maybe his parents are there, maybe he has siblings, friends, maybe a girlfriend. Okay, maybe not a girlfriend. Flirting in church is something that helps you stay awake, but my point is that While Eutychus is a stranger to us, and it's all 2,000 years after the fact, he's not a stranger to the people in this room. He's not a punchline in the original scene. And so you would get the expected rush downstairs to survey the damage, and the report comes back, he's, he's dead. That sure puts a damper on the evening. I've been to some evening services in my life. I've even slept through a few, but I've never seen such a tragic turn of events like this. But on hearing this terrible news, Paul, who always seems to know what to do, he goes downstairs 
But Paul went down and bent over him and taking him in his arms said, Do not be alarmed, for his life is in him. You can almost hear him saying, you know, as soon as he comes back saying, you know, I was just resting my eyes. It's like my mother's, you know, eternal words that she likes to throw around. Uh, on a first reading of that verse, I don't even know what to make of it. And some commentators, including F.F. F. Bruce, who I respect, has argued that the initial diagnosis was just wrong, that the boy never actually died. And that's a possible reading. It's maybe the natural reading of that verse alone. However, that seems to me highly unlikely. This is a three-story fall, probably head first, because you can't jump feet first while sitting on a windowsill facing into the room. Even if you had straddled the windowsill, either way, you're going to be falling almost certainly headlong. Dave, I remember you fell from a ladder many years back. How many stories was that, Dave? Two. That was two. Okay. You're still awake and alert and alive. That's good to know. Um, but you were awake when this happened, I take it. Right. So you could maximize a defensive posture. You could try to protect your head in the process, I guess, a little bit. Uh, but if it's a head-first three-story drop and you're asleep at the start of it, that's probably going to be fatal. Not too many guys are going to survive that, at least without significant permanent damage. Now, that's still a possible reading of the text. Luke says twice that the boy was alive, not necessarily unharmed. Could be a fluke thing. However, we have to remember that Luke recorded first that Eutychus was taken up dead. And we also have to remember when we read that, that Luke is a physician. Any doctor worth his salt should be able to assess whether someone is alive or not. Otherwise, what are you paying them for? And remember, this is where Paul met him. Luke has worked as a doctor in Troas, and these people knew it, so he's essentially the attending physician. He's the house doctor. In all likelihood, Luke was the first one down the stairs. He's the one taking him up dead. And Luke likes to give grisly details, as we've seen on occasion. If Eutychus was mangled, he could have explained that. If Eutychus had only been unconscious, he would know it. But he reports that Eutychus was dead. That's all he says. He pronounced it at the scene. He's dead. And another detail that argues against Eutychus surviving this fall is how Paul's reaction is described. The ESV says that he bent over him. Uh, the literal translation is more like he fell upon him. But I think this is all actually kind of reminiscent of Elisha and the Shunammite's son in 2 Kings 4. I'm not going to read that passage, but in that story, the child ran out to his dad working in the fields crying that he had a terrible headache. Oh, my head. And he said, well, take, take him back to his mother. And he sat on her lap for the rest of the morning, and right around midday, he just dies. Midday as opposed to midnight in today's story. But the interesting thing is how Elisha raised the boy up. He did it by praying and then laying on top of the boy. That's kind of weird, but it works in that case. The boy sneezes seven times and then gets up alive. And I think Paul's actions here kind of imitate that scene. I don't think that's a mistake. It's almost like he borrows the methodology and imagery of Elisha, breathing life back into the boy. This shows Paul as the prophet. He not only proclaims God's words, he also channels God's power and mercy. So after this whole rather unsettling scene, 
Everybody goes upstairs. Everyone is still feeling a bit shaky. Nerves are shot. And Paul knows exactly what everyone needs right now. When Paul had gone up and had broken bread and eaten, he conversed with them a long while until daybreak and so departed. Perfect. What could be better than six more hours of a sermon? It's also amazing because Paul has been talking for hours and only after midnight did they even get around to the communion portion of the service? Can you imagine if I tried to squeeze in even 10 minutes after communion of talking to you again? There'd be a mutiny. Paul comes across a bit tone deaf here. Now, I understand why evening services like this would have made a lot of sense. People didn't have Sundays off in these days, right? And that means almost everyone is probably coming off a full work day. Just amazing. I, I promised. I, I, it says right on the website, I will let you go by 1230 today, but you know, don't say I never did you any favors, right? I could be doing this. In the end, Paul only lets them go at dawn, just in time to go back to work. How nice. Weird. But at least Eutychus is alive, am I right? Verse 12, they took the youth away alive and were not a little comforted. So things aren't a total loss. Everyone's underslept and stressed out, but the kid's still kicking, so that's good. Now, what's the point of all this? Just a cautionary tale, like a Grimm's fairy tale type thing. Why is this an important story for Luke to include in the midst of the travelogue? He says, nothing in all those other cities, this he brings up. Why did God see fit to chase Paul back to Troas? I mean, we could say if it hadn't been for Paul, Eutychus would not have been healed. But we can also clearly say that if it hadn't been for Paul, Eutychus never would have died in the first place, right? So other than giving me an excuse to take cheap shots at those of you who rest your eyes during the service, and you know who you are, why are these things in Scripture, and how can we apply this? What does it have to do with the gospel? Well, I can think of a few takeaway lessons. One is that your mothers were right. Bad things do happen after midnight. Ideally, you would be better off in bed most of the time. On the other hand, that's not the entire picture because good things also happen after midnight. The early church thrived on midnight meetings in secret. It still thrives in those settings in a lot of countries today. It seems like a silly way to do church to us, but it's the lived reality for many of our brothers and sisters around the world where they don't have off on the Lord's Day and can't meet in public. It's also a good argument for proper ventilation in the sanctuary, isn't it? Thank God for air conditioning. It feels pretty good in here. It's also a good PSA about sitting on windowsills. It's not a great idea. It's like the same lesson as Peter Pan. Open windows are dangerous, right? My, my in-laws have this funny book at home. It's like one of these coffee table books. It's old pictures of things you could never get away with today. And one was this invention. It was a cage that you could mount to your windowsill. And it was designed for, like, New York apartments where there's not a lot of open space. And the idea was you could let your baby nap in the fresh air in this cage <laughs> that's mounted to the window. Brilliant idea. I think it's also worth admitting 
that this is a good argument, this text, in favor of better, shorter sermons. Can I get an amen? Come on, even Presbyterians should make noise for that. Come on, guys. And seriously, a more interesting sermon is harder to sleep through. And a shorter sermon is easier to focus on. So I don't think this passage endorses the longer sermons of Paul. Luke himself seems to make excuses for the boy falling asleep, doesn't he? Luke's not blaming him, and why would Luke blame him? Remember, Luke is like a Paul roadie, right? These guys, Paul's entourage, have probably heard these messages before. They're thinking, wow, he's doing that whole series again tonight? It's probably hard for them to stay awake. I I was listening just this week to a lecture by Martin Lloyd-Jones, and he was warning against repeating sermons and the dangers that you could fall into. And he tells a whole bunch of horror stories, including a time when he visited a church where some young lay preacher who didn't recognize him went up there and plagiarized one of his own sermons. (laughs) And poorly at that. Um, historically, the old Methodist circuit riders, like my great-great-great-great-grandfather, uh, they always repeated their sermons, because if you keep moving around, the odds are it'll be the first time every audience has ever heard it. It's the brilliance of the Methodist system. They move you every two, three years or whatever back in those days. And I got away with recycling some sermon material at the RUF conference using the same tactic. I'll never see most of those kids again, Sam. And I won't be repeating some of those stories, Sam, from this pulpit or any others. But Luke and the others don't have that advantage, do they? Uh, They're following Paul around. They're hearing these things again and again and again, just like the guys that used to follow the Grateful Dead around the country. My father-in-law was one of those. or He's still a recovering deadhead. You know what the one guy said to the other guy at the Grateful Dead concert after they sobered up? Well, these guys really are terrible. (laughs) Sorry. Anyway, the lesson for preachers, I think, is keep the messages sharp, keep them short. But there's a lesson also for you all. Stay awake. Falling asleep in church can be dangerous, but besides that, the gospel's too important to sleep through. It's worth getting to bed at a reasonable time on Saturday night, if that's possible. I doubt Eutychus had the luxury, but most of you do. He went to overnight church after a full day at work. Most of you don't have to. I can just feel George's eyes judging me. Um, I know, I'm one to talk about lecture on bedtimes, I know. Um, But seriously, the the gospel is the word of life. It is life-giving, and that means it's worth staying awake for. But I think that perhaps the most important takeaway is this. Today is Pentecost Sunday, right? We're celebrating what? We're celebrating the gift of the Holy Spirit to the church. It's the central theme of the book of Acts. It's the active work of the Holy Spirit in building his church. Jesus died, Jesus rose again, he ascended to the Father, all so that he could send the Spirit to live in us. Everything changed once Jesus sent the Holy Spirit. The church has been growing, not because of the power of men, but because of the movement of the Holy Spirit. Now let me ask you all, 
Did Eutychus hear and understand the entire sermon that night? Almost certainly not. Was this Paul's finest moment as a preacher? No, I don't think so. Was the sermon particularly memorable? I'm guessing not. Luke didn't bother recording any of it, right? So Paul delivered an imperfect, long, boring sermon, and this kid Eutychus didn't hear half of it. Okay? But let me also ask you this. Was Eutychus dead? Yes. Did he have the power to raise himself up? No. But was the power of the Holy Spirit enough to make him alive again? Yes. Did that power depend on Paul's sermon delivery? No. Did that power rely on Eutychus's understanding the sermon? No. Did the Holy Spirit rely on anything that Paul or Eutychus could do in this story? No. I wondered if this episode inspired the early Christian hymn that Paul quotes in Ephesians 5. He says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. That's a poetic summary of the gospel. But dead men don't wake up on their own power, do they? Christ shines on dead men and women, yes, but only because the Holy Spirit wakes them up first. That's the gospel. That's the gift that we celebrate today on Pentecost Sunday. The Holy Spirit, the very power of God, resides in us, the church. And he doesn't depend on us doing everything right. He uses even long and boring sermons and sleepy congregants, and he takes that and changes the world. I hope you're not bored this morning, but even if you are, that doesn't negate the truth of any of these things. Christ is still risen. He is still at the right hand of the Father, and the Spirit still dwells in us and is working. That's good news, even if you're nodding off. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we do thank you, as always, for your word. We thank you for even the the quirky, funny stories, maybe even especially so for those. We thank you for the testimony of Eutychus, Lord. The story of dead men made alive, Lord, not because they were paying attention or understood everything or because of the power of any mere man, Lord, but because your Holy Spirit is at work and is building your church, Lord, and we couldn't screw this up even if we tried. And we do that a lot. Help us to believe that, Lord. Help us to be encouraged by it. This weekend going forward. Thank you for your Holy Spirit. I pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever.